this week on The Undoing. Meet Grace Frazier. She's the most beautiful therapist in all the land. She's married to British Jonathan Frazier, a fancy pediatric oncologist, and they have a precocious violin-playing son. She has to go to a ladies' tea, which is somehow a thing, and talk about rich people auction stuff with other skinny white ladies. But behold, there's a beautiful young Latina named Elena Alves at this meeting, and she is aggressively breastfeeding her baby in the middle of it all. Everyone is scandalized, even Grace, though she pretends not to be. But keep that feminism primed, girl, because next time you see Elena, she is going to be naked in a locker room chatting about nonsense with her pubes in your face. Cut to later, and all the parents from the Reardon School are congregating in the apartment of other rich people to raise money for this school that costs 50k a year to go to. They need to raise scholarship money ostensibly for kids like little Miguel Alves and his nudist mom. So they literally auction off a glass of water for $1,000, confirming that we all need to rise up and overthrow the oligarchy. Just like the rest of us, Jonathan Fraser really doesn't want to be there and keeps complaining, but seems to charm everyone with his dry British wit. Grace finds an overwhelmed and crying Elena in the bathroom. Elena has to go home because her boobs hurt, but insists on taking the subway alone in an evening gown all the way to Harlem, even though Grace offers her car, but also just Uber next time. Of course she doesn't go home before randomly kissing pretty, pretty Grace in the elevator. Jonathan is called away to aid a dying child, and then he comes home to cry into his wife's neck while banging her. But here's where things get juicy. Poor little Miguel Alves finds his mom dead in her studio, in a pool of blood and still in her gown. All the moms are talking about it, Grace keeps trying to call Jonathan, but he's in Cleveland and left his phone behind. As Grace calls every hotel in Cleveland, we get a fake out and think he's just having an affair. But alas, he's straight up missing. And that concludes episode one of The Undoing. And with that, we're back for season four of Big Little Podcast. As always, I'm Teresa and I'm a Jane slash Bonnie. I'm Carolyn and I'm a Madeline slash Renata. And I'm Rebecca and I'm a Jane slash Madeline. Okay, ladies, so let's start by going full-on bad feminist and talk about Elena, Elena Alves. I don't know, because of big fire, little fires everywhere, I have no idea <laughs> whether it's Elena. Yes, yeah. this is the undoing of big little fires everywhere. Yes. So that's what we will call this show, the undoing of big little fires everywhere. And I think mm-hmm. it's Elena in this show. Yes. It was Elena, okay. You got to say yeah. with a little more spice than that, like Elena. Yeah, yeah. It's Elena. It's that's sexier. It's Elena. That's that is the problem because it's like halfway between Elena and Elena. It's like Elena. Yeah. So yeah. exactly. Anyway, so what are we throwing away nude. our feminism for for Elena <laughs> because of her aggressive nudity and what the hell we're supposed to make of it. So just to set the scene. Like, first of all, she breastfeeds this baby. She doesn't just breastfeed this baby, though. She straight up takes her shirt off and has on, like, a sexy bra, not like a maternity bra, and just pulls the bra down and just stares into Nicole Kidman's eyes while she's doing it. Like, and then she shows up in this crazy locker room scene, which doesn't make any sense for a whole bunch of reasons. But, like, she's just that. She's, like, the lady equivalent of that old guy who walks around a locker room butt ass naked and then just stands there with 
like his junk in your face. It's like bordering on sexual harassment. Like, what are we supposed to make of this? Okay, so <laughs> when I saw this, mm-hmm. I had a flashback to when I was in elementary school. Oh boy. I went to a friend's house for, oh yes, buckle your seatbelts, ladies. This is I episode a, one. <laughs> <laughs> I went to a friend's house for um, a sleepover and... Uh, you know, it was a very exciting, fun time. We're watching Grease on VHS, and my friend had, uh, her mother was from Germany, and she came downstairs at the end of the movie when, um, Sandy is wearing the little leather pantsuit activity, you know, Mm -hmm. like at the end, the we go together costume, that skin tight thing. So mm-hmm. anyway, she, the mom comes in and goes, oh, she shouldn't wear that. It's really bad for her vagina. <laughs> now, the fact that she said that would have been appalling enough to a bunch of like eight-year-old girls, but she was also full on naked, like giant no. bush out. Yes. Like f- saggy, floppy boobs, bush, all of it, all of it. And she said the word vagina. The poor girl whose birthday it was and had the slumber party, the the daughter of this mother, like, I turned a color red that humans just should not be turning. It sounds like you need an appointment with Grace. Yes. So, but it made me think of that because it was the same level of shock value. And I remember coming home and telling my mom about it. And she's like, oh, well, Ulrika is from Germany. And they just, they, they see things differently and do things differently there. So let's just start with maybe... Some of this is cultural. And also, Elena has a bang and bod and is like, you know what? I'm going to walk around and show this off. Well, yeah, but she, okay, that was one of my qualms with this. Like, she is straight up carrying around an infant the first time we see her. And now we're supposed to, like, see her totally flat, unscarred abs, like, a few months after giving birth ostensibly. And she's just, like, trotting around this this fancy gym that doesn't make any sense that she belongs to, by the way, because Grace and Grace clearly lives on the Upper East Side. Elena says she lives in Harlem. Like, why would they even be going to the same gym? Like, they're in completely different neighborhoods. You'd probably have to pass, like, 10 gyms just for them to, like, end up at the same gym. But they're also clearly in different income brackets. So I was also confused by, like, why these two ladies would even be at the same gym. I mean, if we're going to get into this eight minutes Mm -hmm. in, um, (laughs) I have a whole theory about this. That, I mean, really, we're getting a little deep, a little prematurely. But, you know, that's what you're here for. Mm-hmm. So I think all of this is a hallucination. I don't. Oh. I don't think any of this happened. I think all the, the nudity. I think the locker room scene. I think the breastfeeding oh. scene happened, and that is where like the fantasy begins. You get like a glimpse, mm-hmm. and then your mind takes it elsewhere. And she just gets done having this, you know, sweaty workout, and is sitting in the bench like cooling down, and her mind is wandering. And I think the reason I thought this was because nobody else was really reacting. Like, mm-hmm. there wasn't anyone else walking by and, like, doing a double take to this woman. This, like, beautiful woman is completely mm-hmm. naked. I mean, you know, a passing nude nude moment in a gym is one thing, but she is, like, strutting around, as Teresa said, like, the creepy old man who's got his old chrum, to use Borat's word, <laughs> out. <laughs> like, this was, you know, it seemed like it was just happening um, with her. And later on, there's a flashback that seems to expand on that original scene 
in a mm-hmm. way that to me felt like, again, like the mind is adding to it. It's making it a deeper thing than the original fantasy was. And as we've seen, she's a therapist. So, you know, rich interior mm-hmm. lives are no stranger to the providence of a therapist. So I feel like this is an example. And we're going to find out that this is something that she's concocted. Wow. See, Rebecca, I like that theory because I also struggled with why is this woman at the same gym when mm-hmm. they don't live in the same neighborhood and all of that. So I, of course, had jumped to some sort of reasoning that we would find out that she worked at the gym or something. Um, that was what I had come up with to mm-hmm. Naked. reason with this. <laughs> well, that maybe she's one of like teaches a fitness class or something, which is, yeah. explains why her body looks so tight after you know, pushing out a baby. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I couldn't even believe I was spending that amount of time trying to reason with this. But I'm hoping that we do get some sort of resolution. But Rebecca, I love that theory. I am so here for that, that this is some sort of... Uh, Just a daydream, a sexual daydream. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some sort of sexy okay. dream. And let's be yeah. real, she's a beautiful woman and just had this mm-hmm. like intense eye contact a few hours before that because we are led to believe this workout happens after they have this meeting correct am i messing that up no i think you're right because there's the and that you're the timeline does seem a little weird because we go from the, you know the very opening scene is the son finding her dead yes and mm-hmm. we and then it says two days before so then two days before is this meeting yep then the next she, day She's the nursing Madonna, and then it's after that that she sees her at the gym. But I want to get this timeline straight. So we have the two days before. The first day is where the meeting takes place and this gym visit. The second Mm -hmm. day is the auction, correct? Yes. Okay, so those are happening on separate And then the third day is she's found dead. Yeah, I think so. I think so. But so I do like your theory as well, Rebecca. However, I I have a little wrench to throw into the works here. Yeah, let's get into it. We also see Elena in bed with her husband, right? And she's obviously upset about something. It it kind of looks like she's crying. I'm not 100% sure I saw that right, but she definitely doesn't. She kind of wants her husband to get off of her, and she looks upset about something. And my theory here is that this gym scene is going to keep unfolding and oh. we're going to see that a lot more went on between her oh. between Elena and um and Grace than we've Lesbian seen in love I like that a lot mm-hmm. yeah i i do think that that gym scene is the pivotal moment because all right we're going to skip ahead to uh what what it, what is her name it is not Celeste uh it's Grace. Her name's Grace. Grace. Yeah, okay. We have Grace making the most stressed out and guilty looking peanut butter sandwich ever with the <laughs> cops interrogating her. I have, <laughs> I have never seen a stressed out PB&J like that. <laughs> so that led me to believe that obviously she there is something that she knows that we don't know yet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then the fact that we go back to that gym scene, I do agree that whether that gym scene is a reality or the very interesting dream theory that Rebecca uh, pitched here, that is where the that's where the pieces are going to come into place. Yeah, I mean, I really like Teresa's idea that we're just getting snippets of this, and it's. I think this show is the whole frame of it being a therapist, or I don't know if she's a psychiatrist or a psychologist. I don't think that's been established, but. This idea that the, sh- the structure of the show is going to mirror 
the way the mind works. So whether that is fantasy or the fragmented nature of mm. memory, I feel like it's already the way the, the shots are being set up. It's meant to have that sort of frenetic back and forth. And I feel like that's what the previews were kind of alluding to, which is why we were so kind of confused after watching numerous ones. It's meant mm-hmm. to sort of have that like fast frame shutter effect that the mind has. So I, I'm really excited if that's the direction it's going in to kind of delve more into that almost stream of consciousness form of editing a television show. Agreed. I'm just excited for this show in general. I have such a better feeling um, than right? little fires everywhere that, you know, that I was like, all right, well, I guess we're in it now. We're going to do this. This I am actually very excited to uh, to watch and see this unfold. And um, I just really think that Nicole Kidman has hit such a stride as an actor right now. Um, I, I think her performance in this first episode was absolutely captivating. Also, we have to give a shout out. Her hair is like a star mm. in this. Yeah. <laughs> her hair is perfection. Um, she, Yeah. Uh, one of my first notes was like, can someone just please make Nicole Kidman stop being so beautiful? Like there shouldn't be, it shouldn't be allowed that there's a therapist who is this beautiful because how do you ever talk to her like without well, that's just that's why her staring? clients are gay men. Yeah. <laughs> Well, no, there's that one. Well, let's since we're talking about the therapist part of this, let's talk about some of the therapy sessions we see a little bit because we see two. The first one is a woman who, um, you know, she's ranting and raving and stalking back and forth something about her husband and yada, yada, yada. And Grace basically tells her, like, I think your moods are the problem, not his. And then the next one we see is... um, a couple, a gay couple, where she basically says one guy had an affair because it was the one thing the other guy couldn't control. And in both sessions, her, you know, her clients end up angry and like sort of storming out kind of. And it's like, is she the best therapist ever? (laughs) Or is she the worst therapist ever? And what does all of this mean to the rest of the show? Yeah, I mean, speaking from having years of (laughs) therapy, I feel like there are two types of therapist and person that is in the therapy seat. And that is you're either looking for hard truths to improve or you're there for support and back padding. And they're both valid. And I think a good therapist sort of knows how to oscillate between the two. So, okay, obviously we're, we're being shown two very intentional sessions. You're not getting a full picture of what her day looks like. So... Part of me wants to think they're trying to say that she takes this approach with all of her clients. And I wouldn't necessarily Mm -hmm. say that's the mark of a good therapist because it seems like, at least in the case of the first woman, that she needed calming down, not riling up in that moment. Mm -hmm. And it seemed very, you know, antagonistic. I also think that David Kelly in particular likes to present sort of high stakes therapy scenes. And it's it's (laughs) jarring because most therapy sessions are not this way. And it does very much seem like there is some, whether it's intentional or not, stereotype about like the type of person that's in therapy. It's either people that are dealing with an affair or somebody that's like clearly a narcissist. (laughs) I think that, I don't know. So what I'm trying to say, I guess, is that there are two types seemingly and those types can be interchangeable and it seems like she's just taking the steamroll, hardline, truth teller approach. And I don't know if that ultimately is going to be a comment on her character or a comment on the types of clients she sees but I think it's more likely setting us up to believe that she kind of does have this very aggressive black and white view 
Yeah, and I, I mean, we talked about this. Uh, the three of us had a little chat about this, and uh, I think now is a moment to slide in with the fact that we, it is fascinating to see Nicole Kidman, her character Grace, being the therapist, where yeah. last that we on this podcast saw her was playing Celeste on Big Little Lies, who was uh, in therapy. So, and there are comparisons that we're going to talk about between these two shows and, you know, the fact that it is David E. Kelly. Uh, there is this, like, sense that it kind of exists in the same world as Big Little Lies. And so that this, and I joked that I feel that this is kind of like Celeste leaves Monterey, becomes a therapist after (laughs) going through her ordeal, changes her name to Grace, and we find her landed in New York (laughs) and uh, on the other side of the uh, couch, if you will. So I, I think it is interesting that when we look back at Big Little Lies and uh, the scenes of Celeste and her therapist, that therapist, uh, we all felt was a remarkable therapist, mm-hmm. uh, but was also not as assertive in being like, you just, you, you need to do, it wasn't all, she wasn't always as assertive at the beginning about like, you need to do this. This is what needs to happen for your safety. And, uh, here we're seeing Kidman play this really aggressive therapist, uh, who, is not afraid to have her clients just walking out. And she is, she sort of thrives on giving them the hard truth. She, she says that. Mm-hmm. Um, so. But is that I, a good I, therapist? I don't know. I, I don't know. And I don't know if we're supposed to think that she's necessarily a good therapist. Uh, I think her character is based on this first episode. Uh, there we're supposed to kind of be a little uncomfortable about yeah trying to figure out who she is. Uh, and I mean, the same goes with her husband. We're I was to about to say, he is, is he a good doctor? Like I, that's the thing. He is being set up to be a very good doctor in our minds because we get that scene. Although again, that scene felt dreamlike because you see this mm-hmm. like presence in the light behind him. And that really like shook me. Cause there was that moment before it fades out where you saw, I thought it was uh, I thought it was Grace walking up behind him. You see this yep. kind of shadowy presence in the light. So we don't know if this is the reality or this is how she envisions he is with patients. But he has that incredibly tender and playful and beautiful moment with a young sick girl. And, uh, you know, he was exactly the kind of doctor that that's the bedside manner that you would want at any age, really. Um so he was being set up for us to be like, yeah, he's a great doctor. And she's in these scenes where we're like, oh, but she's not as good of a doctor in her area. Well, I, I, think, I think she is supposed to be a good doctor or at least a very expensive doctor. Yes. Yes. Expensive like, and good I mean, or different. That office is beautiful. And, you know, when she's sort of complaining, like they, they pay you for the hard truths, but then they don't want to hear them. Um, to her husband, he says, "Ah, eh, just raise your rates, and the more exclusive you are, the more they'll they'll want you." So I think we're supposed to believe that she is a very good therapist. And when we were talking on the trailer about the book, and I, or not about the book, but I was sort of reading what it, you know, trying to get an idea of what the show was about by reading the book cover. It said that she's a therapist who's about to have a book come out, which we haven't heard anything Mm. about so far. So I think maybe they might have axed that plot point. And instead, we're just supposed to we're getting these snippets of her sessions and a therapist for the rich. Yes, she's yes. She's therapist for the rich. 
and and she charges a lot of money but since we've already kind of started talking about her husband and money at this point I, I want to bring up a couple other points so one there were a few things I keyed in on with him and one he really seems to dislike everyone right she there's this point where she says should we move out of the city because New York is too much of a bubble and this this we should say is after this weird breastfeeding scene right and and it you kind of have to wonder if there's something there like if this whole there's something more to this weird breastfeeding scene that has led to her also wanting to leave the city but he says well we don't like anyone here anyway and she's like well you don't like anyone I do and he really doesn't want to go to this fundraiser and he's real and is this just like are we supposed to understand that he's kind of above it all and all these people and their rich people concerns? Or is this some kind of red flag? So I get the sense that he is being positioned to be a bit of a curmudgeon. There's the whole mm -hmm. thing where like he doesn't want a dog. Mm -hmm. uh, he's like a little bit cranky all the time. Um, also, like, so Hugh Grant, I think at his like best in his prime was kind of like sexy claymation to me. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, now he's like a, he, he's very, he, he's aging well, but still he kind of looks oh, like a raisin I disagree. in this. Yeah, he looks. <laughs> I'm trying to be polite, but he yeah. looks like a, he looks like a freaking raisin. Like, come yeah. on. Um, so I, I mean, it was hard for me the first couple of scenes. All I was fixated on is like how old Hugh Grant is. And, uh, he looks craggy. He looks craggy, especially next to Nicole Kidman, who has had every line like surgically removed from her face because she has the best skin of any living human being. I think part of this is intentional. Like I mm -hmm. really got the vibe that this was, she was younger than he was. This was an older man. Like the way he talks to her is a very sort of like creepy old man, old English man sort of the scene that just got me the most is when she's in the shower and he's like, would you like me to wash you grace? Mm -hmm. I, I just was like, this feels like a dynamic where he is significantly older than her. He's maybe had a wife before. Then he hmm. married her and had a kid. And now he's kind of experimenting with this life as a father. But it's not really his the extent of his lived experience. There's something about him that he's hiding. He's got, you know, his dry dislike of people to me seemed both like a classic doctor trope. Like, oh, the doctor is mm -hmm. good with bedside mammer, but he's bad with people. Yeah, I was just getting the classic, like, doctor trope of that he is, you know, more often than not, you're finding him on a day where he's tired, he has a dry English sense of humor, he's a bit of a curmudgeon, and that awkward sex scene and the awkward shower scene, I chalked up to him just being awkward. Like, that their sexual chemistry is, like, a little off, because he's just, you know making like cheesy weird doctor jokes but i feel like they're setting it up that it's like a generational thing like he is cheesy and older and then by contrast she has this super young perky he's not older well <laughs> not not in real life Botox. but i think the way the show is setting it up is that she is kind of occupying this middle ground between her Fair. husband who's at one end of the spectrum and then this young lithe perky sexy mom that's flashing her boobs. Like, I think that mm -hmm. they're meant to kind of occupy this spectrum with beautiful, ravishing Nicole Kidman in the middle. Yeah. I mean, they have never... Nicole Kidman really, like, it's like they have given her every beautiful light, every beautiful outfit. Mm -hmm. Like, her hair is stunning. This, like, makeup is just... 
perfect for her. I, I mean, like this is she is in like peak Nicole Kidman. Like this is like Moulin Moulin Rouge level. For I her. kept writing that down. I said she looks like a therapist for the Moulin Rouge. She looks like Stevie Nicks' personal therapist. Like it's got that mm-hmm. opulence and that camp. And we haven't talked about this yet, but we'll get to it. But the awful opening track it like it, oh, right, the first art. note oh. I made was like is this like a campy nod to Moulin Rouge because the tone of her voice mm-hmm. reminded me so much of her tone of the voice in Moulin Rouge and I was very interested if they were going to kind of go there with the character and then when I watched the show I was like oh no they're not going there at all so this makes zero sense but well before we get too too far down the Moulin Rouge road I, I want to talk a little bit more about some of the Jonathan stuff because yes. Carolyn brought up his the fact that he doesn't like dogs and the first time I watched it I thought I didn't really think anything of it right it's just a morning scene with the family but then later we get this you know he tells the kid he's allergic and that's why he can't have a dog and the kid tells his mom like I think dad just secretly hates dogs and she comes up with this story about how he was watching his lie definitely a big little lie is it her lie or is it his lie I think it's her lie she seemed like a bad liar okay Mm -hmm. but why do you think it was his lie no, well, I'm not, I don't know. No, I'm not sure. But I wonder if there's a significance to it. Is it beyond either, because on the one hand, if it's his lie, it's just she doesn't really know what's going on with him. Yep. If it's her lie, it's like, why Why are you lying to this kid? You know, is it because you think he can't just take no for an answer and so you're trying to come up with something more traumatic for him? Or is it something they're in on together? Like, I don't even know. I I think it's there's going to be something weird there that comes back for some reason, even though it seems like this really unimportant. Well, I think we're conditioned to make the neurological link that if somebody doesn't like dogs, that makes them a villain. Yeah, <laughs> you immediately. It's true. Dogs are a signifier of humanity. If you, that's it's the romantic comedy trope. Must love dogs, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm-hmm. So the fact that they're setting this guy up for someone that's anti-dog already sets off alarm bells, and I feel like that's kind of a red herring. And I feel like this whole episode in general is set mm-hmm. up to kind of give you these red flags about uh, what's his name. I just cannot keep his name. It's Jonathan. 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 I don't know why I can't remember that, but Jonathan we're meant to feel like there's something off about him. And I feel like this is all just a bait and switch. Well, that's interesting because when he's walking the kid to school or whatever they're doing, walking across the park in the morning, um, the kid also says to him, you know, well, sometimes you're joyless when you're stressed. And he seems really sort of surprised by that. And from what we've seen, you know, I get the curmudgeon part, but I don't know. But he kind of seems like a fun curmudgeon, yeah. right? I don't get joyless. No, this is from English him. joy. You have to understand right. like, what he right. is displaying is English joy. It doesn't get more joyful mm-hmm. than that. So when they said he's not full of joy, I'm like, no, this is literally just like how a boisterous English person behaves. I mean, up until the scene where she was calling around and for a hot second thought he was having an affair. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, no, actually back up until the scene where she found his phone in the drawer and that he was allegedly you know in Cleveland like out of town mm-hmm. nobody goes without their phone mm-hmm. so until that moment he did not raise any any flags of concern for me and i like i said i mean i chalked up all of his weirdness to him just being an awkward curmudgeon who's maybe not a super sexual being and has this like hot wife 
who clearly has a sexual appetite that is uh, more into exploration as we see with the Elena moments. Mm -hmm. I will counter to that that there's some bad writing in this episode that makes me think that they are trying to set him up for that. When her friend, Lily Rabe's character, calls her, she's like, it's always the boyfriend, it's always the boyfriend. And then Mm -hmm. later when her son, Grace's son, says, did the husband do it? I feel like all of this is setting us up to think that he's going to be prime suspect number one for this. And then his absence, Mm -hmm. of course, affirms all that. But I feel like those little kernels that seemed otherwise really kind of out of place, especially Mm -hmm. the phone call between Lily Rabe's character who leaves the meeting. Like, I felt like there was a reason they were including that. And that was that they needed that scene for her to set the precedent that, oh, it's always the boyfriend that does it, which is what as viewers were expecting. See, and that's why, interestingly, I actually started in my mind, pointing a finger towards Grace. Yes. So did I. Because I felt like, you know, all this stuff about a husband or a boyfriend, and I was like, oh, but that they're, you know, missing, they're missing a key piece Oh, we're going to get into Mm -hmm. that. Yeah. (laughs) So, but, so one of the other things we also learned from Jonathan is that Grace's dad is actually the one who pays for Henry's school. He's the one who pays the 50 grand a year for this kid to go to this fancy school. And then we later meet her dad, who is played by Donald Sutherland. So obviously he's going to be important and he's going to be back in future episodes. And I'm wondering if there's something like, you know, he's a pediatric oncologist. She's a very high priced therapist. Like, why does the dad have to pay for the tuition? Is there something more we're going to find out here. This was another reason I kept thinking like we were seeing stuff that wasn't real and hallucination and unreliable narration because that was a huge red flag for me looking for unreliable Mm -hmm. sources here. Like the fact that the grandfather is a presence there and is paying for it and these are two of, you know, a therapist and a pediatric oncologist are some of the highest earning positions you can have. Mm Mm-hmm. But he he did seem, like, very involved in the school. I don't know. That didn't set off as many red flags to me. You know, he he seemed very involved in the school. Maybe Grace went to the school. But did he? His involvement was he showed up at the auction, bid on something, and bounced. I don't know. I mean, he's, like, 90 years old. He has to go home and go to bed. That's being involved for, like, a 90-year-old, for God's sake. Fair. So. Fair. I will give you that. Yeah. I mean, I – and I just think, like, in – uh, private school world, if there's like a school that, you know, a, a kid is a legacy at, it's not uncommon for the grandparent to be involved no. and pay for it. Not uncommon, but I think it's a statement in a six episode television show where every line has got to carry some sort of intention. Fair. And, but I mean, they're, they're definitely, uh, both of them kind of have a negative attitude towards this school in general. Uh, both of them being Grace and Jonathan, which led me to believe, like, I kind of, I mean, I didn't put it together till now when you said that, but if, you know, maybe they, they were just going to send him to another school or maybe, you know, public school would have been nice because they talk about, you know, if they left the city, like, school, they I think there is some reference to that. I feel like there's school. something up with the school. Like, there's a, a couple instances mm-hmm. here where at one point she asks, Grace asks her son, like, do you like going to school there? And then Jonathan's obviously got this kind of, like, weird antagonistic relationship with the school. So I feel like we're going to learn more about this Reardon school. Well, I'll tell you two things that are up with that school. <laughs> one... They're doing this uh, whole fundraiser event, and the woman is 
giving a big cheer to a big cheers to demo, um, to diversity. If by woman yeah. you mean Donatella it, Moss, then yes. Yes. That's the yes. <laughs> and it's a room and the camera pans out and gets this great wide shot. And this actually made me laugh out loud because <laughs> there is literally like no, no one in the room who even has a tan. So <laughs> you're, th- this is a problem right there for anyone who mm-hmm. is, has any sort of soul. The diversity cheer, my soul left my body. I was cringing exactly. so hard. So right there, wouldn't that make you mad at that school? And then two, the other thing that's going on at this school that should be raising eyebrows is the uh, glass of water auction. Oh, oh God. Okay, so they had this whole meeting where they're talking about all these amazing donations they have from, you know, Broadway and the Guggenheim and artists, and now they're auctioning off a fucking glass of water for $1,000, like pretentious bitches that they are. So those two things right there told me exactly what is wrong with this school. Unfortunately, I have been to one such auction like this for a private school. And let me tell you, <laughs> oh, we, auctioning yeah. off a glass, a half full glass of water or a half empty, if you will, is the most on-brand, best, like, accurate writing I've ever seen. Like, that was such Agreed. a great scene. I, as again, like, I that whole extended auction scene, I just, I dissociated. It was perfect it reminded me of like the first season of the british office like the level of cringe was just perfect it was perfect and that is why i know that this school there that those are what are the pro those are the problems because those are very real that that was so real so cringeworthy it was it, it, it just was such a bullseye but it exactly shows you if you have any sort of soul, which maybe we're going to suppose that these characters that we're following that they do, Oof. that would be problematic for sure. Well, since we're talking about the auction, let's talk a little bit about um, Grace and Elena's meeting at the auction because everybody's clothed, um, but they're in a bathroom again. <laughs> and Elena's crying coming out of the out of the bathroom after being hit on by Carolyn's roommate, I might add. Oh, and his bone structure in that shot. <laughs> I know. Alex is very excited to join us for uh, mm-hmm. another podcast to give us a behind the scenes uh, stories. He and I watched it together and um, he was the handsome blonde with the profile that was right to Elena's right. Like the one closest yes. to her to the right. And let mm-hmm. me tell you, you will know by the cheekbones. Yeah. And I have to say he played a straight man interested in her very well. I know. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know. I did giggle at that too. Mm-hmm. He really, he really did a great job. Um, but yes. So obviously we're being set up to have this uh, moment where she's attracting all these uh, young men at this private school auction yeah who are Um, there for what reason i'm not quite sure like they're like it's for my future children i will maybe they're alums maybe they were part of the auction possibly Uh, they were talking about auctioning off husbands so Mm -hmm. maybe they decided that that was a little too day class a for them and they went ahead and got uh you know some young beefcakes in there yeah (laughs) Well, so then we see we see these two ladies in the bathroom, right? And and Elena sa- says to Grace that she's the kindest of all the people at the school, but she's still kind of crying. And then Elena like is like, "Where are you going?" When she gets on the elevator, and offers her a car and rides down the elevator with her. And then Elena kisses her, and you're like, 
okay, what's happening here? Like, I'm still thinking that something has happened at this gym scene that we don't know about. But also at the same time, it's like, why is she calling her the kindest person if something maybe a little unkind has happened? And it just, I mean, it is, I am so confused right now. And I'm sure I'm supposed to be, but I'm wondering what you guys make of like this whole meeting. Well, it's really interesting. And I really responded to your comment about the gym scene because I also Mm -hmm. felt like this bathroom scene was cut short like we got Mm -hmm. the conclusion of it and then we have the scene where Elena's coming out crying and Grace notices her and runs over in a way that seems familiar to me and then the kiss itself did not seem to me like a first kiss it seemed like a resolution to something that had happened before Mm -hmm. so whether that happened Mm -hmm. in the gym scene and we're only getting a piece of that or whether that happened in the bathroom scene or whether literally all of this is fabrication and, and this isn't happening and this is just her fantasy that she wants this to happen. I think mm-hmm. we're getting little snapshots and we're not getting the full picture. And I think that's really smart of you to pick up on that. That's exactly, I thought the same thing. I was like, this is not the first time that interaction, aka the kiss, has happened. It was familiarity. It was a resolution. There was something like that had already gone on that had precedent for intimacy because she like didn't, recoil or respond in a way that like this is Mm. new it was very much well and also it was like it's quite intimate to tell somebody to take your car um I mean like I know she meant with the driver and everything but I I mean do you would you tell somebody that you literally have met twice like oh have my driver take you like I mean can't relate if you're (laughs) yeah yeah can't relate but uh it, it did feel um that that felt like a little bit intimate as well to me well the kiss i responded to the kiss a little differently because i was like i'm not even sure this is sexual because she she's kind of this overtly sexual person who's a little overly familiar and is this just a weird lingering like thank you for your kindness kiss in the way like strange europeans go around kissing people on the mouth you know what i mean true like is or is this sexual? And I'm not a hundred percent sure. Yeah, I mean, I completely had the same reaction. If it's not mm-hmm. depth and familiarity, it's this is just how she is. And mm-hmm. I don't know. I've been getting. I got vibes right from the beginning, from the first scene that um, Grace is there at this uh, at the planning committee meeting with her. Mm-hmm. Um, that you know, while all these other women are either having a uh, appalled reaction or feigning a reaction to her whipping out her breast to feed her baby, mm-hmm. which a totally normal woman thing to do, by the way. Um, while all these women are busy having a reaction, Grace's reaction was very, uh, it, it, it was it was noticeably, like, curious. And it was sensuous. She wasn't t- looking at it like this is... Titillated. It was this like... Is titillated. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. Titillated. Yeah, I had to. I had to. (laughs) Um, But I I think that there is definitely a tension there and uh, and it was palpable in that scene and then it is carried through. And I think that the fact that uh, for me, I noticed that in the early scenes, I was like, all right, this is her husband. Like they had this, you know, they, they seemed to have this very like lived in rapport. It seemed... Uh, you know, like a very healthy relationship. But it's like as soon as that Elena character came along and we had that like titillating nursing scene and then all these other things, 
uh, you, that was when you really noticed this like awkward connection that she and her husband have this like awkward flirtation for him to get into the shower. Uh, this awkward sex scene where it, it, it you know, she's she so quick doesn't... to auction him off. She's like, Oh yeah, you can have him. And mm-hmm. then in the sex scene, it's like, I'm going, this is going to be, you know, I'm going to face away from you. I'm going to let you work out whatever you need to work out right now. And what I'm getting, it just seemed to me in that sex scene, her thoughts were a million miles away from the actual act. And it, it's implied that he came into bed because he came home from the surgery that ended up in a casualty and he was super upset about it. But of course, you know, here we are knowing that something is amiss. We're thinking, is that why he's upset? I think that this whole episode is meant to cue us up to think that Jonathan has done something. Yes, it, it is in one way. But I also, for me, it cued up that Grace has done something. Yeah, yeah. Because this mm-hmm. show is called The Undoing. Yep. And I think this is the her undoing. And I think that everything, to me, in this episode pointed to her having this brief but, you know, passionate, amazing affair or moment or interaction or plan for an affair with Elena. And maybe it led to something, you know, something towards Elena's demise or maybe not. And maybe this is the emotional response to you know, something is going on because nobody makes a peanut butter sandwich with that kind of tension. Yes. (laughs) So, and there is definitely, there was that sexual tension. And, uh, so for me, everything right now is pointing to the undoing of, of grace. Um, and I'm fascinated. I am hooked. Are these bingeable episodes? I don't know why I don't know this. No. They're airing no. episodically no. Oh. for six weeks. Oh, well, that is amazing um, because I would be binging the rest of this right now. Okay, so let's talk about Detective Joe Mendoza for a minute. So Please, there's two detectives. Let's. Yeah, yes. So in in true, you know, um, Law and Order style, there's a chubby, frumpy detective, white guy who's good cop. Nah, I, who knows what his name is? And then there's Detective Joe Mendoza, the handsome Edgar Ramirez, who is hot mm. AF, is not buying Grace's pretty rich lady act um but it actually seems kind of weird to me that he seems suspicious at this point already like why he must know something we don't what did i mean other than the aggressive pb and j scene what did you guys take away from this i mean same thing you said there's something that we don't know yet as viewers that he knows whether Mm -hmm. it's a piece of evidence found at the crime i think the fact that they narrowed in on her specifically with the police so soon this wasn't Mm -hmm. like all of her friends were getting interviewed by the police. They were talking to kids at school that knew the kid, and then they specifically went to her house. It wasn't like she was there mm-hmm. to pick up her kid, and they are like, oh, by the way, you're another parent. They came to mm-hmm. her house. They wanted to talk to her husband. They wanted to talk to her. So I feel like this is another instance where we're only getting a tiny sliver of the picture. Yeah, this is, uh, you know, our first our first taste, so we're not getting, we're not getting all of it. But, yes, he is clearly out for information from her um and she's not helping i mean even if he hadn't been out for information from her her behavior right from the beginning of the questioning is so spazzy right like everything about it if i was a if i was an, a detective and i went to talk to somebody and they were behaving like that in this like squirrely 
politely evasive manner, I would be like, I'm going to continue to question you because something I, I, I'm getting, uh, I'm, I'm getting a vibe here that needs more, <laughs> that needs, needs more. Bro, so, there's some unchill mm-hmm. vibes in this palatial kitchen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, for sure. And I think, so there, there's a mix of, there's definitely something that they have on her or know or suspect, but at the same time, even if they didn't, her behavior is just so bizarre here. Um, and that was when I really like put together, like I started to kind of suspect like that she's gonna be involved in some way, but this really made me, I was like, oh no, no, no. (laughs) And then I think they were deflecting by having her find his phone. And when she's trying to call him, I think that that was a deflection. Well, what, what is up with this? Like, where is it? Where do you, he's gone missing? Like he's not in Cleveland apparently, but did he leave his phone behind on purpose and flee? Did something happen to him? Like, what, what, what where do you guys really think he is? I think he's dead. Mm. No, because he's in more of the trailer, right? I don't. Or those could be flashbacks. Yeah. Oh, my God. I rewatched the trailer, and I don't think there's enough. And also the preview for the season, she keeps repeating, your, your father is missing. Mm-hmm. I think he did. Oh. Yeah. And I think Holy that the, the scene of him coming into bed, I, that's another scene where I was like, is this real or is this a uh, fabrication? Well, and then that would make sense about his doctor scene. I'm thinking like dissociative identity disorder. Like the fact that we're setting up with a therapist and the frame of the whole story is this is happening to a therapist. Like my mind immediately goes to, is this like a fun mix up with the therapist is really the one that should be on the couch and has this undiagnosed whatever. I mean... Mm-hmm. This is where I just I just feel like the way they've kind of framed all of this is making me think that Grace is concocting things in her mind that aren't happening and we're seeing it through Grace's lens. So the thing that stood out to me, one of the scenes that stood out the most to me was that scene where he is having that sweet conversation with the patient and you see there's like a light behind him and a figure comes up and then we just kind of cut the scene. And Rebecca, if you're if your theory is correct and cuz the next scene that we cut to is that is her in bed and then he comes in and we have that like awkward uh you know crying sex weird cuddles finger patting thing um that that would make sense that this is some sort of uh you know that she was laying there thinking about this i mean you make lies true by believing in them so to create a situation where you're imagining this intimacy happened, this series of events happened, like that makes it more lived in and believable. And I feel like so far this has been given to us through Grace's perspective. Um, also, we have not investigated the chance that Elena and Jonathan had previously had an yeah, affair. That, I, that did occur to me mm-hmm. too. And that... Grace, I I almost called her Celeste. I stopped myself. And that Grace, you know, became aware of this. And that is her attraction and her obsession and her glances and interaction with Elena. Either way, I still say if we're going to be starting some uh, wild jacuzzing here, I am going to jacuzz Grace based on this episode. So... All this conjecture about some of this maybe not really having happened and what's a dream and what's not actually, 
sort of um, segues into the next thing I wanted to talk about, which was the theme song, which seemed so out of place to me. It's dream a little dream. It's very kind of sweet and upbeat sounding. And I really could not figure out why they would choose this song. It just made no sense to me. It seems completely tonally wrong for the show. But if dreams are important or like the sort of, you know, fantasy aspect of this is more important than we realize, then this theme song makes a little bit more sense. And that saccharine sort of like surreal Nicole Kidman doing a cover of a song that we all Mm -hmm. know but like if you were to ask me who originally sang Dream a Little Dream I don't even know the real title of the song it's one of those songs that we all recognize and know but we can't say exactly where it originated from it's got that folk quality and that fantasy quality and hearing it Mm -hmm. in Nicole Kidman's very like Moulin Rouge affected voice whether or not I was conscious of this or not while watching it, it cued me up to expect that. I, I The first note I wrote was, this is a really unexpected campy choice. And now mm-hmm. that you bring this up, I'm thinking like, it's not camp, it's fiction. It's fantasy. It's uh, dream a little dream mm-hmm. of me. Like we are, we've concocted a reality within a reality that's not there. And that is how mental health often works. I mean, you're dealing in interiorities versus exteriorities. And if this show is set up to kind of be a mirror of the way a person sort of interacts with the world, I think it's going to be really interesting. So let's talk about the music in general a little bit, because this is could not be more different from Big Little Lies if it tried when it comes to music. It's really just classical music through almost the entire show. Um, why, what do you think this is about? Uh, well, you know, I actually kind of love that except for when the show opened with nutcracker music and that just like literally (laughs) broke me out in hives um for those listening that don't know i uh have i am a professional dancer as well and have performed in the nutcracker uh every holiday season since like the age of six so um i could sing that score to you she's triggered uh yeah it was a trigger (laughs) trigger warning Um, but an interesting trigger, an interesting choice, because uh, it was, it, it, you know, Nutcracker music is obviously a Christmas thing. It was just an interesting choice for me as far as classical music. Um, uh, it, it what the part they used is the grand pas de deux from Nutcracker with the sugar plum and the cavalier, and and uh, what was this so over, Carolyn? What what scene was this? So this over, is at the very beginning when she's like brushing her teeth and like selecting a dress and then mm-hmm. selects a different dress, and then they use it again. It comes back in the scene where um, the what is the, the that woman's name who's at the, it's this this season's Renata is at um, I think her name's Sophie class. or Sylvia Sophie, or something. Sure. She, I'm calling her Renata, but okay. um, she is at the ballet class and she's on the phone and like give, telling her daughter, like, point your toes, fix your arms. Mm-hmm. And that music is playing again in the context of a ballet setting. Um, but I loved the classical music uh, tie-in. And I, I mean, I felt like it really, for me, kind of struck the right chord uh, mm-hmm. as opposed to trying to uh, sync this up with music the way Big Little Lies did so well. Um, I thought that this kind of gave this a really, uh, I I, I don't know, it kind of took it into that like dream hemisphere of sort of, it it made it sort of this like dance to me. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I really like the way that they used the music when she's like walking and everything. Like I, I don't know. It sat really well with me, with with my with my ears. Rebecca, I know you had some thoughts about why they might have chosen some of this very fancy white people music. Um, what did you? Yeah, think well, about? That, that's my reason. I mean, I do feel like there is a tendency to create tonal cues with music, and David Kelly is very good at that. We saw that with Big Little Lies; he created that Monterey beachy, you know, moody aesthetic by invoking music and different musical cues. And I feel like in this case, it's kind of mirroring what shows like Succession have done, where they've used these very dramatic classical tones to underscore how deeply white and rich this ecosystem we've found ourselves in is. I also Mm -hmm. feel like, to Carolyn's point, it does sort of invite that operatic theatrical quality mm-hmm. when it opens with grant like in the nutcracker i mean literally a stage production when it opens with that you do kind of feel like the curtains are parting and you're starting to see a drama unfold and it does kind of ratchet up the dramatic tension and that all sort of plays into this idea that this there are fictive elements here and we are not necessarily getting completely reliable narration as long as we're talking about sort of david e kelly and is it david e kelly or is it just david kelly it's David E. Kelly. I think it's David E. Kelly. Okay. Well, so since we're talking about some of the things he likes to do, I want to start a new segment called Nicole is in a really nice shower again. <laughs> and other David Kelly tropes carried over from Big Little Lies. Because that was the thing that stood out to me. You know, she's in another one of these all glass showers with her husband standing nearby talking to her. Luckily, this husband doesn't also beat her up in the shower. And you know, you guys sort of keyed in on some other things like this, I think, that are very sort of um, Monterey 5-esque. What are some of the things you noticed? Should we go back and forth? Uh, Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Start. I'll throw one out there. Okay. So uh, definitely right away we have uh, the glamour, just this fancy glam. You have a beautiful home. You have stunning clothes. Everything is like, it's beyond aspirational. Um, this is obviously the New York City version instead of the Monterey version. But it's it's that same level of lifestyle. Yep. So one of the first things I wrote down was we have a core bitchy mom group with like one token young mm-hmm. teen mom that clearly has been around mm-hmm. and seen stuff, TM. So that's a, a classic thing that David <laughs> Kelly likes. What else you got, Carolyn? Uh, we have the um, talking head interviews, again, from mm-hmm. police investigating a crime. They were done kind of in the, a similar way. We have parents outside a school talking about a crime. I was like, oh, we're back to this. There we are. I just simply wrote down on my list of things David E. Kelly likes, Renata, because it seems like whatever, whether her name is (laughs) Sylvia or at one point, I'm pretty sure that Grace calls her the wrong name, but whether it's Sophia or (laughs) Sylvia or whatever, that is Renata down to the accent, down to the mannerisms. Mm-hmm. I mean, this it when the scene where she's instructing her daughter in ballet not to smile, I was just like, this is Renata and Emma Bella. Like, I, I don't know how Well, else. yes, and I, I had written down that as well and also wrote down the quote that she says when she says, 
uh, she's talking about how Elena likes to sit outside the school and just sits there. Yep. Mm-hmm. And she's so confused by this because she says, quote, you live in New York. It's a crime not to be frantically busy. Yeah, yeah that killed me. I was like, that lady, is... chill out. But like strong I was like, did Renata you energy? not want Laura Dern to play mm-hmm. this role? Yeah. But Lily Rabe, <laughs> like, I feel like is the inheritor of Laura Dern's mantle. Like, I know her originally sure, from absolutely. Ryan Murphy's American Horror Story anthology. And she, you know, I have my qualms with that series, but she is great in everything she does, and I feel like this is makes perfect sense for her to kind of be the Renata character in here, and I love that casting, and I think she's going to be funny and give us all of the gifts and the memes that we need. Mm-hmm. I also had ri- schools for rich kids and selective poor kids. Because that does seem to be a theme mm-hmm. here that we are dealing with, is that you've got, like, you know... Well, not not just that, but this whole thing revolves around a crime that also revolves around a school fundraiser. Yes. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the, this is just, like, East Coast, Big Little Lies, and instead of a dead husband, we've got a dead mom. Yeah. I'm telling you, it's the undoing of Big Little Fires everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> See, we did um, have a through line here. We weren't crazy. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. We delivered for you. Um, I, I, I do think like the, the similarities to Big Little Lies are going to continue to pop up just because of the nature of this. Uh, and, and for me, right away, one of the, the big things that, that, that stood out was uh, the, the, the look of this, that, you know, I mean, Big Little Lies transported us to this amazing Monterey lifestyle. And here you see the the New York, this like New York upper crust lifestyle with these luscious townhouses and... Uh, and palatial you know, kitchens. fundraiser. He loves a kitchen. Like yes. I feel like a lot of his dramas are centered around like it's it's... David E. Kelly's equivalent of the Sorkin walk and talk. Like, we are looking at people around these massive islands with these beautiful stoves with hoods behind them. And you're just like, I want to aggressively make a PB and Jelly. PB and J? PB and. And the windows, the views. So, the fundraiser location is allegedly supposed to be somebody's penthouse. Right. Yes, and they keep talking and about Suki's have... closet. And all I can think about is True Blood. Yeah. <laughs> sure. <laughs> But, like, you get these amazing, and you even get this shot. Now, I don't want to go too much into this because uh, Alex, when he guests oh, yes. with us, is actually able to talk about this. So, but the apartment that they're alleging is this person's per- private penthouse home with this these sweeping window views of Manhattan. It actually was shot at the uh, One World Trade Center at the observation deck there and they made it look like somebody's apartment and I'll let him talk about that more um and we get that shot of her standing at the window taking in this view very much like the shots that we got of these women standing on the cliffs of Monterey uh and that shot uh Alex Alex was there for that shot he will tell you exactly what went into getting that that shot of her through the window um but it again is another to me that was sort of the that that was sort of the thing that kind of tied this directly to it I was like here we are it's just a different location but it's the same uh kind of vanity fair angle of of uh, you know these desirable places that you would want to live and these desirable circles you think you want to be part of um but now seeing this how you know seeing that 
disgusting underbellies of it, as we found with Big Little Lies and now with this, and even like, you know, Little Fires Everywhere, where it's like even in the most privileged of circles where you think these people have it all, obviously it's, they have so much more to lose and they have so much more higher stakes and so many more uh, crazy, crazy just increases with with uh income apparently yeah as the great biggie smalls once said more money more problems (laughs) damn straight oh that wasn't biggie like what's wrong with me that was definitely puffy and mace but anyway yeah um biggie would not enjoy being having that i just uh, love that this is your through line (laughs) (laughs) yeah this is your through line yeah here you go Let's talk about let's let's get down to some of our recurring segments for this season. Um, I want to talk about the best outfit first, the the fancy glam, as they call it in the episode or the luxe fashion, whatever you want to call it. Let's uh, Carolyn, what was your favorite outfit of the episode? Hands down, Nicole Kidman, a.k.a. Celeste, a.k.a. Grace, her fancy glam fundraiser outfit. That gown where she just looks like some sort of art deco dream, but it also has this kind of sheen to it that's sort of that, uh, I, I don't it know. It looks what like is that? her exact outfit from the disco, Emma Bella's disco birthday party in Big Little Lies. Yeah, but who cares? She looks so good in it. It's just so good. But really what made that outfit for me and the cape, this, this cape that she wears to enter, although it didn't really match the dress, that cape was so exquisite with its like embroidery. I did But that whole outfit is obviously, I mean, they could just make a Barbie doll of her in that. Um, it was like, I, I, I could not stop looking at that. I had to rewind and look at it more. I was like, what is this? It looks like an oily sticker. Like the dress, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, like I, it, it had that kind of sheen to it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Oily sticker, iridescent. You use big words. I'm <laughs> do a throwback to <laughs> a sticker from 1989, but whatever. Um, yeah. I, I, I just think that uh, that was really, really the uh, a work of fashion. I liked her uh, boho therapist about town look with the like little bell sleeves and the boots and the jacket. I thought that first look really set the tone for the character. I mean, she's a free spirit. She's got a vague Australian accent, even though she's clearly American. Mm-hmm. Like, I just thought that her initial look was very purposeful and strong, and I coveted it for sure. Yeah, I, I don't know. I wish I was five feet tall or like six feet tall and, you know, 120 pounds because her clothes are like my dream wardrobe, including that dress. I would never actually wear that dress from the Oh, thing, no. Hell no. But it is so gorgeous. But since you've already said that one, Carolyn, I think I'm actually going to go with Elena's dress. I mean... Mm. You know, I the think the tits out, the tits McGee dress, Ooh. the tits McGee sort of Roman bodice kind of, but blush like sort of ballet pink um, color. I think she looked really great, and I'm, I'm, you know, we're meant to assume that she is from a different tax bracket than everybody else, but she shows up and she gets all the attention with that dress because she looks great. Well, it's not the dress. It's yeah. What, yeah. what's pushing up under, <laughs> tickle under the dress. But yeah. yeah. I mean, um, well, then I she chose well. That... She chose well. 
So the other thing we were trying, you know, we used to talk about our favorite um, homes from Big Little Lies, but we didn't get quite as many um, covetable real estate shots in this. So instead, we're just going to talk about the richest thing we saw. Like, what what was the thing that stood out to you as like, these people have money in this episode? Lily Rabe's like foyer with the like bad Italian restaurant guilt ceilings and Mm -hmm. floors was like this is rich in like the worst worst possible way like this is people that don't Mm -hmm. have any class but so much money and they're like you know this is what donald trump's foyer has got to look like like that's it was so real housewives of new york there you go so real it was so rony like spot on i think like sonia morgan literally lives in that town are you talking about that where they have the ladies tea yes yes okay because I think that's actually Donatella Moss's house, yes. no? Okay. And by Donatella Moss, Other... we are meaning whatever her name was, the parent yeah. whose name. We're only saying this because Teresa and her I. Her name is Sally. Her yeah. her name is Sally Mayberry and I, because she introduces herself at the, you know, she gets up on stage at the beginning of the um, fundraiser. And I was like, that is the worst name I've ever heard for a fancy rich lady from New York. And by the way, Alex has a great behind the scenes story involving that. Be sure to ask him about her. Stay tuned. We've got insider Um, scoop for you this mm -hmm. season. This is a whole new big little podcast. (laughs) This was, but that was also like the thing I put down because it, that house looks like it's not even a townhouse. From no. the outside, it looks like a museum, like a small museum. It looks like a Biltmore. With... Like it, it, it looks like a yeah. lobby of a very fancy hotel that we don't belong in. Like, yeah. I was waiting for yeah. someone to shush me or be like, don't don't look at this in the eye. Keep keep moving. Move along. It was just, and also ugly. I mean, objectively, yeah, it's like, not cute hideous. at all. And it just is another one of these signifiers that I think... And this is maybe one of my complaints with this first episode was it did get a little heavy handed in like the overt Upper East Side, you know, Mm -hmm. these are rich people TM. Like, I don't really think people in the year 2020 or whenever this is set, clearly not 2020 because everyone's not socially distancing, 2019, people don't have houses that look like this. Like, this is not the aesthetic of the moment. So I do feel like they were trying to kind of hit us over the head with the, these people are rich, Hammer. Yeah, for me, the rich person moment in this episode is a toss-up between that glass of water auction, which, yeah, I mean, like, Rebecca, like you said, I mean, we've all been at auctions where they do something like that, and it doesn't make it any better. It's never okay. Um, And that, so it was a toss-up between that and then Grace just saying, oh, you you can take, you can take the Yes, I did laugh at that, too. So... Yeah, that to me is a huge, a huge, uh, that's a huge mark of the kind of lifestyle that they live. Um, the fact that she has the, her, that kind of familiarity with a driver, her driver. You know, it's not, like you said, it's not an Uber. It's not, uh, you know, you can take my car, like let me drive you. It's my driver. And she even clarifies, like, oh, I don't have to drive you. I just have a driver. He can just take you. Yes, but apparently it's faster to ride the subway all the way from, I mean, I don't know where they're supposed to be at this point. Uh, All I can think is that they're all the, she's all the way down at the World Trade Center. You can tell by the view it would be, Mm -hmm. it's downtown. But, I mean, we know it was filmed at the World Trade Center. So, yes, Mm -hmm. to go from this, like, luxury 
high-rise penthouse downtown all the way up to Harlem is not faster on the subway. Uh, absolutely not. Nothing and, is I mean, faster on the subway. weekend and there's a local train? No. <laughs> um, no. So we already know Carolyn's opinion, but right now, based on what you've seen in this episode, who is the prime suspect for Elena's murderer? If I'm just looking like hard facts at what the episode presented i would say jonathan what my deep Mm -hmm. gut says is it's grace just based on like how i i I don't know i feel like there's a lot of stuff that we're either getting yep i'm currently i'm currently yeah but i I feel like the episode set us up to believe that jonathan is is shady there's something beneath the surface he's got this like fun charming love actually exterior when really he is a stone cold dog hating killer of attractive young (laughs) latinas like i I think that that's what the episode wants us to leave off yeah i think i think if you look at the most obvious things that they're trying to throw at you they definitely want you to think it's jonathan but i think if you spend as much time as we do thinking about it and talking about it i think it's also pointing you at grace yeah i think it's and i actually i almost my gut feeling would be that like both of those things are red herring and that yep. somehow Donald Sutherland is actually involved even if he's just protecting someone else yeah you, you know what I mean because why why do they have him here like he's obviously he's obviously gonna play a much bigger role than he has so far and I you know based on some of the trailers there's like you know this is what rich people do when they're threatened kind of thing and you know, who's a better rich person being threatened and responding violently than, you know, Donald Sutherland. And then there's obviously the most, you know, obvious culprit here, if we're looking at this in a real world lens, which is the husband Mm -hmm. who we've seen very little of. And he is set up in the previews for the rest of the season as the person that the police are actively looking at and are investigating. I don't, we haven't seen anything in this episode that leads us to believe he's had anything to do with it. I mean, we get that shot of him sitting in bed alone the night that Mm -hmm. this is all happening. So that kind of cues us up to believe that he's innocent. And I think that was another big thing that made me think that Grace was responsible, was that they intentionally showed him in bed by himself the night that she's murdered. So I think it's going to be interesting to see what the next episode... I, I do think this is going to be one of those shows where every episode we are going to be answering this question because I think, you know, it's six episodes and we're meant to feel like somebody else is in the hot seat each episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but isn't that exciting? I am so relieved to be back and being and talking about a show that uh, is not just infuriatingly, <laughs> um, you know, little fires everywhere. <laughs> so... I, yeah, I mean, I am excited to see where they go with this, for sure. Um, and I'm, I, I am, I am ready to be wrong about all my theories, and then mm-hmm. think I'm right again the next episode. Um, I'm really hoping to get on a nice, uh, get on a nice ride with this. So, do you ladies have some recommendations for our listeners this week? Yeah. Why don't you start, Rebecca? Okay. Well. Mine are a little, you know, as always, if we're doing highbrow, lowbrow again, a little mixed. Mm -hmm. Uh, My highbrow would definitely be um, a show I just watched at the beginning of this week called Mrs. Wilson. It is on Amazon Mm -hmm. Prime. It is starring the actress Ruth Wilson, who is uh, famous for her work on The Affair on Showtime, which I have lots of feelings on. 
but she's a great actress. And it is actually about her real life grandmother who her <laughs> husband died and she found out after his death that he had other wives and this career in MI6 that to this day they haven't really figured out what his role was, whether he was actually in the service, whether he was just deranged and had all these wives and was just a sociopathic liar. It was originally released through Masterpiece Theater, but it is now on Amazon Prime. It's only three episodes long. Each episode's a little under an hour. It's really, really interesting, and I would love to talk to people about it. So if anyone has watched it or is willing to watch it, DM us. I would love to chat. And my lowbrow, and yet verging into the territory of highbrow, if you really look deeply at it, is Borat Subsequent Movie Film which you best believe I spent all day Friday just like gearing up to watch and enjoyed thoroughly, but also depressingly. I mean, really, it is just a true testament to how bad 2020 is that Borat Sakdiev is doing some of the best journalist journalism we have seen this year. <laughs> so, you know, we've got an election coming up. If you're on the fence, which, you know, at this point, my God, pick a side. But if you are still on mm-hmm. the fence... I really highly recommend watching Borat subsequent movie film and then like maybe thinking long and hard about your vote. So those are my recommendations. Well, Carolyn? yeah, uh, I'm, I'm going to say vote. I mean, that's a recommendation vote. Cause I know we're launching this in time for that. So please do that. Um, Rebecca in, uh, in response to what you said, it reminded me of, I was not going to make this my recommendation, but, the show that you were describing reminds me of a book I read not too long ago called The Wise by Taryn Fisher. Hmm. I think I told both of you about this when we uh, socially distant got together. Um, but if you like that show or like something like that, The Wives by Taryn Fisher is a great ride. I am sure they're going to make this into a series or a movie. Cool. Um, it, it's really cool. But anyway, so that's a bonus recommendation for me. Uh, my highbrow, I guess, would be... Um, Haunting of Bly oh, Manor. So good on Netflix. I mm-hmm. cried so hard. I yes, yeah, I mean I didn't cry, but uh, I I had the I had feels. Oh, I cried um, hard in the last episode. The acting in it is actually spectacular, um, especially from some of the secondary characters. Mm-hmm. Owen. Um, Owen is the internet's new boyfriend. Yes, Owen. Owen. I have fantasies about nightly. Um, and uh, what the 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 actress? She, her name is escaping me now, but she plays the housekeeper. Oh. Um, she is, I I think, uh, the 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 internet and the world's new gift uh, of a performer. I cannot wait to see what she does next. Um, the show, in general, in case you don't know, is loosely based on uh, Henry James's *The Turn of the Screw* and a couple uh, of other is... ghost stories that he wrote that weren't published. Yes, which is very cool. Exactly. Yeah, it sort of intertwines some other stuff. So if you buy like the Henry James anthology and read it, you'll see uh, traces of that. But um, really, really well done. Definitely, definitely watch that. Yeah, I second that. Um, yes. Yeah. For sure. Um, and then, I mean, I don't even know if I can say that this is like lowbrow per se, but, uh, recently Miley Cyrus has been doing all these covers. Carolyn, did you listen to my episode of The Nose? Like I literally endorsed both of these things. 
Like, mm-hmm. what? That's like, no, we I are didn't. not only voice twins, we are mind twins. I literally endorsed Blind Manor and Miley Cyrus's recent covers. No so way. I did you. not listen to you on the radio show that we were both on. Bizarre. Uh, not often at the same time, so that is very bizarre. Um, yeah, so cool. So we're voice twins and endorsement twins. Nailed like, it. How good are Miley Cyrus's covers? Like, let's talk about it. Okay, her cover oh, of Heart of Glass so is so good. Then she has um, Pearl Jam. Yeah, she just did um, Gimme More and... by Britney Spears, which was, you know, one of Britney Spears' weaker songs. And it is so no, good. She does that song, A Justice, that we never thought Who it even knew? needed. And then we have um, uh, the Cranberries cover mm-hmm. of Zombie. And it is just everything that you ever wanted. And Miley Cyrus, uh, I'm loving this new incarnation for her of this kind of 80s slash 90s glam rock. Her voice is phenomenal in this capacity. And the way she like reinvents these songs in a true tribute is spectacular. So go forth and uh, start listening to some Miley Cyrus. So based on you you guys and your love of Owen from The Haunting of Bly Manor, uh. I'm gonna I'm gonna change my recommendation because <laughs> he plays a character named Ravi in the show I Zombie. Ooh. Oh which is a really fun show on its own. It's about um a promising young Doc, or she, she's a medical student who is turned into a zombie at this party gone crazy. And in order to cope, she leaves medical school but gets a job in the medical examiner's office where <laughs> Ravi is the medical examiner. Ooh. And so she gets to use her medical skills and has access to brains so that she doesn't have to hurt anybody. But she quickly learns that by eating someone's brains, she gets, like, bits and pieces of their memories. And so she uses this ability to solve crimes. And it's really campy and funny. And it's by the same guy, Rob Thomas, who did Veronica Mars. And it's really got a lot of that same kind of... um, just like spunky girl energy and it's it's a lot of fun i like the show a lot and then yeah and so then for my highbrow i guess just by by comparison a book is highbrow right so i'm going to um recommend in in a dark dark wood by ruth ware it's um it's just kind of a fun i love ruth ware yeah i mean it's just a mystery there's nothing particularly crazy about it but if you want like a good fun read that is you know centered around a group of women it's you know they're all away at a um, bachelorette party and um someone it will dies. certainly make any shitty bachelorette party you've been at feel better yes um <laughs> you know and so it has a lot of that big little lies kind of vibe to it you know a bunch of women a dead guy who who did what no one really knows um so check that one out all right well i guess that's it from us this week we'll be back next week with episode two of the undoing
Thank you for listening to Big Little Podcast. If you enjoy our show, please consider becoming one of our valued podcast supporters at www.thebiglittlepodcast.com or just leave us a positive review on your favorite podcast platform. Can't get enough of us? Follow us on social media at Big Little Podcast for exclusive content in between new episodes.